0: This morning is kind of part two in sharing, and um, as you read through the Bible, sharing is is just an immense value. If you've graduated from kindergarten, you recognize that sharing is an immense value, and you've been taught that and instilled that for a really long time. You also find it very, very difficult. You find actually on a daily basis that you need help in doing that, But, but sharing can really change the world. Just a couple of examples, the wiki model of sharing information. Um, now there's, you know, pros and cons to that, but that has literally changed the world. I reported two weeks ago that Encyclopedia Britannica stopped printing after 244 years. That's in part due to sharing. Um, my dad and I were talking and I, uh, I walked out of the hospital to get some cell coverage. I had a few moments to actually check the headlines for the first time in a, several days and I read this article about pink slime. Have you guys been tracking the pink slime story? Yeah. So I had to ask my dad to kind of fill in the gaps because I didn't really read the whole story. But pink slime is another example of how sharing can actually change the world or change an industry. I was thinking about the Middle East and all the uprisings and revolts that have gone on. That has literally changed the course of history because of just the sharing of information and sharing of ideas and gathering around. It's really pretty remarkable. Well, if sharing can change the world, sharing the gospel can change eternity. So to change history is one thing, but to share the gospel and alter eternity is an amazing gift that a Christian has been given. We've been in a series called Grow to Go, and it's an apologetic series, which is a fancy word for giving a reason for the hope that's in you. It's it's a defense. It's, a, it's giving the reasonableness of the Christian worldview, and I think we've all been challenged and have been growing in it. Every Christian in every age must take up the banner of Christ and march forward in this call to defend. Philippians 1.27 says, Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now here's my hunch, is that for most sitting in this room, many of the faces I know, some I don't, but for most sitting in this room, you already know what I'm telling you. We already know this. Not only do we know this, but we know how to do this. We had a service in, uh, I think it was maybe 2009. I'm not sure uh, exactly when it was. But we stopped everything and for a week we just gathered and we had some different stations and we just focused on the love of God. Some of you remember that service because it was a powerful service. It was very moving to as families and as couples and individuals move from station to station. And one of the stations simply said this. You went to the station and it just said, the love of God compels me to.'" And I saved what you wrote. You wrote it on some butcher paper, some in crayon, some in pencil, some in pen. And I wrote all that down and I saved it. And let me just tell some of the things that you wrote, church family, in response to this prompt. The love of God compels me to. You ready? Give it all away. Forsake sin and live the way he wants. A life of love and holiness. Love others and extend grace, his grace to others. Serve him and him alone. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. Here's another one. Love others. Accept people just as they are. Be honest. Inspire others. Love, 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 forgive. That was one. Here's another one. Open my heart to love orphans, love my kids, lay myself down daily to be uncomfortable Another one said this, the love of God compels me to be thankful. Another one said, to tell about Jesus. Another one of you wrote, share it with everyone I come in contact with so that all will know his unconditional love. Another one said, love without exception, let go, be courageous, speak. Someone else wrote, serve others. Another, help others. Another, the love of God compels me to have more grace and love for others. The love of God makes me feel restless to live and not waste time. Two more, do everything I can to try and bring people to Christ and be so nice that I would be... Um, I can't make out the last part. Some of you don't write very well. Um, Laughter. Here's the last one. Share. And there were many, many more. These are just excerpts from it. Here's what I know. I know that the Holy Spirit reminds you of what you are to be doing and what you're about if you're His. And so there's a place in Scripture it says you don't have anyone to need to You don't have anyone who needs to teach you. The Holy Spirit is teaching you. And so sometimes as we gather here on Sunday mornings, I hope that. Much of my work, much of what I'm doing is stirring up by way of reminder what you already know. You know it. Unprompted, in a in a morning service, without any preparation, you came in and by the Holy Spirit's moving, you wrote the message of what we're to be doing in terms of share. So I don't know that knowledge, for instance, I don't know how to do this is a valid excuse. I just don't know what to say or what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know if that really flies. I think we do know what we're to be doing. I hope at the end of this series that you are growing and desiring to be a simple and faithful witness for Jesus Christ. Not an expert. Not one who has to master all arguments and logic so that you can be effective, but a simple and faithful witness for Jesus Christ. I don't have notes for you, but some of you might like to write things down. 1 Corinthians 20. Go read it, because it's the pedigree with which most of us who are called share. And that is that we're not considered wise by the world's standards. We're not considered ones who have great repute. And just by us talking, the world's going to stop and take notice of us. You know Why? It's so that God will get the glory, so that someone would look at our life, someone would look at me as a mouthpiece and say, if that guy could be used of God, there's hope for me. It's so that when you live your life in such a way that it actually draws people to glorify God, they won't glorify you. They'll see that there's something different going on. Go try to Google about famous people who have conversion stories. There aren't many by the world's standards. They're famous within the Christian community. They're famous in heaven, but they don't measure up here on earth. Here's a hint to see if you've been tracking with this series well or not. And maybe it's a hint on whether I and Ben have been teaching this series well or not. So I will definitely take part of this. But if you are leaving this series thinking this, okay, I'm going to go and do this and study that and brush up on this, then I think maybe you've missed the point. Because what that's doing is that's working in more and more of you doing and studying and being an expert so that God could use you. That's not simple, and that's not simply being faithful to witness to what you already know. I gave you an acronym last week um, or two weeks ago that I just want to revisit because as you share the gospel, if you are like me, I'm a pastor. I get to study God's word a lot. I've gone to school to do this, and there are just moments where I'm standing there saying, God, give me words to say. I do not know what to say. I do not know the way forward in this conversation, but I want to give you glory. You're my everything. And if you've ever locked up like that, if you've ever had sweaty palms and a racing heartbeat and you go, I know this is an opportunity from the Lord. I want to share. What do I do? Here are just some quick guiding principles. Do it sincerely. Offering people what isn't in the Bible is completely unhelpful. And we've seen witness of that throughout the ages. The H for share is his word. Use the Bible. There are a few key texts that you ought to memorize. Some of you know the Romans road. Some of you know other verses where you can just call them to memory and share them. Using his word is good. Actions just speaks to the fact that your lifestyle matters. R is that you request help, that in the moment you pray and say, God, I need your help. And E is that it's essential that you are urgent with this and that you keep it focused on Jesus and the cross. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 10. If you don't have a Bible, we'd like to gift you one. It's sitting in the seat back in front of you, and you can open up to Matthew 10 from there. That'll be our text this morning. You say the whole chapter, I say yes, 42 verses worth, get comfortable. Just kidding. Um, We use the word share around our congregation to communicate a lot of different things, and it's a really big word in the scriptures. We have a generous God who gives so that his family, so that his children will give away. And where Christians get confused sometimes is we keep thanking. We're the most thankful people. We keep receiving. We go, I can't believe how good God is to us. We somehow omit portions of scripture to say, look around you. I've blessed you to be a blessing to others. I've given to you so that you might freely give to others. And I could tell you story after story after story of our little congregation of this going on in spades. And it's awesome to see. It's so encouraging. I'm so humbled and thrilled that we have a congregation that does that. And yet we need to grow in it. And yet we need to grow. In Matthew chapter 10 is a story or is an account of Jesus who is sending out 12 apostles. Now, to study and interpret the scriptures well, we need to recognize a couple of things. As we read this text, we recognize this was a specific point in history. This was a unique time where Jesus was saying to these 12 men, a message. And giving them instruction. So are there things in here that would be unique to them and not to us? Yes. At the same time, as we see how Jesus sends out 12 apostles, giving them authority to go do a mission, do you think there are things we can grab from to say, we're disciples on a mission, we've been sent out, we've been given authority, he's with us? Yes, there is. And I just want to highlight a couple of these. And then... um, talk about a few hurdles that I think are common to many of us, and then we'll sing some more. Number one is this. If you look at verse 8 of chapter 10, Matthew 10, uh, it says this. He says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts. What I would say to this is, as you go, as you share, as you seek to be an influence and a witness for Jesus Christ in the world to help fulfill the Great Commission, check your motives. Just see why you're doing this. You've been given, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, what do you have that you haven't been freely given? A breath of life. That's just given to you. You didn't pay for it. You didn't earn it. Long before you had done a single thing to accomplish anything for the family of God, God says, I adopted you. I chose you. I legally went through the process to make you mine. Rest in that. It's been given to you. Now, go and give it away. So as you go, measure your motives. As you're sharing with people, measure your motives. I don't know what your hang-up is. Some people want to share Christ because of a performance mentality. I've got to do something to stay on the team. I've got to perform. I've got to get the next level. Isn't that how our world works? It does. it's It's on a performance basis. You do well, you get the A. You do better, you get the promotion. We live in a graceless world. God's a God of grace. And so you leading people to Christ, you being a bold witness, is not earning you more favor. It's not earning you different things that God's thinking towards you. That's just one hang-up. People share Christ and argue with people as a mean Christian, probably tearing down the work of Christ simply because they're argumentative and like to win an argument. That's not... That's not a good motive to go either. So the lesson is measure your motives as you go. Secondly, expect it to be hard. Listen in just a few verses as Jesus is sending out 12 apostles into the world with authority to do really cool things. Listen to how he expects hardship. Look at verse 16. It says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Let's stop there for a moment. Look at the screen. I mean, can you think of a bigger mismatch? That's the picture Jesus uses. We, Christians, are the ones on the left looking stunned and petrified. We are being sent out into a world Full of wolves expect it to be hard look at verse 25 verse 25 says this it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master if they have called the master of the house jesus talking about himself beelzebul which is a demonic uh, title how much more will they malign those of his household If they're coming after the teacher, they're coming after the students. If they're maligning the master of the house, how much more the servants in the home? Expect hardship as you be a witness. Look at verse 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Think of what today represents. The triumphal entry into Christ. Palm Sunday. Those of you who know what Easter is all about, and know the rest of the story. Understand that Jesus came in, and from the all external picture, you'd think, wow, here comes a reigning king. Here comes one who's on the top of his game. Here comes one who's in, in mighty and power. Now, that is true in a grand sense. But in an earthly sense, what we know is that in a few short days after the triumphal entry, the whole crowd's going to turn on him. And those who are shouting right now, Hosanna! Save us! And calling out praises to the Messiah are going to turn around and shout with the Jewish leaders, crucify Him. Crucify Him. Expect it to be hard. Look at verse 38. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I've just read for you A couple of verses in this. Do you think the coach is sending the team out saying expect hardship? Yeah. So must we. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says this. When they deliver you over, that could really tie into our hardship list, huh? When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Number three is trust God to provide. As you go, as you are on mission, as you are in your cubicle, as you are praying and talking to friends and family and neighbors and coworkers and classmates, don't be anxious about what you're going to say. God will provide for you in the moment. I've spent, my wife and I have been, alternating sleeping at the hospital with Curran. And when you're not at the hospital, we've been caring for our other children. So rest has been a precious commodity to us in these past six days. And as I'm there, my daily prayer has simply been this, and he's just answered it in spades. I've just said, God, today has enough trouble for its own. Would you just let me, would you just provide for me today what's needed? Would you provide for me, for my son, what's needed today? It's easy in, in medical situations to get ahead of yourself, isn't it? Always, always wringing your hands and wondering what's next and who's coming in and when's this going to happen and how will we know? Instead of saying, God, give me a piece. you have a piece that surpasses understanding? You've made every cell in my son's body. Just, just, just take care of today. Give us this day our daily IV drip. That's, that's been current. He's just been getting fluids. But that's what I've been praying, and God's been really answering that. Trust God to provide. He'll give you what you need when you need it. Number four is fear well. A lot of times we say no fear, and I get that, but I think actually the Bible teaches us that we are to fear well. Here's what I mean by that. You'll see it in a minute. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says this, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and and body in hell. Do you see why I think we should fear well and not have no fear? No fear is what the rebellious one says to the king, to God. I don't fear you. Proverbs says the very beginning, the very first step to wisdom is what? Yeah, that's right, fearing God. Fear well. For some of you I love your stories. For some of you it's this. I live my life as a as a slave to the opinions of other people. I longed to hear my dad said, I'm proud of you. I longed to just hear people build me up and say, you're worth something. I longed for that boy or girl in my life that would, that would say things to me and build me up. What a freedom Jesus came when he freed me from the fear of men and women and let me fear him instead. Men and women are horrible taskmasters and the opinions of others. It's like chasing the wind, isn't it? God's a good and loving God. He says, fear me. Walk in my ways. And that's where it's at. Finally, number 42, or verse 42. As Jesus sends out the 12, he reminds them that reward is coming. It says, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Measure your motives. Expect it to be hard. Trust God to provide. Fear well and know that reward is coming. Don't you feel built up on a Sunday when the scriptures are open and you say, we can do this. I mean, we're just saying this. If God is for us, who will be against us? And then Monday morning rolls around And Tuesday afternoon and Wednesday night and different things happen in our week. That's why it's important to keep coming back and being with God's people and being reminded of these things. The Bible is a kind of field manual for us as we go, as we're on mission for Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is full of stories, and I try to illustrate many sermons with stories that you have access to, the men and women that God's worked through in the past. But I want to highlight this morning... And I just want the impact of this to wash over you. This is me sitting in a hospital bed having some few moments and just start flipping through the Gospels. I thought, let me just look at the parables Jesus told. Jesus spoke often in story, very simple story, so that anyone could understand it, right? And as he told stories, I thought, let me just listen to these parables with regard to the idea of the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm with you always. That's the Great Commission. That's for every Christian, right? So as I started reading through the the parables, I started to just see, wow, there's just so many themes in here that talk about sharing, that talk about how we are to go and accomplish this mission. We don't need a new book. We don't even need an acronym from our pastor. We need to be in the Word. We need to just be reading the Bible. Here's Jesus, just a snippet of some of the parables. The parable of the sower found in Matthew 13 gives me this impression that we are to cast seed, that's the gospel, wildly and widely. That we are to just be putting this gospel on all kinds of ground. And then here's the other part of the lesson of that. results. Will vary. You always get products that says results may may vary. That's their little out, right? To say, if this doesn't work on you, we're covered. You You know what the gospel message is? Jesus says results will vary. There will be different kinds of ground that that seed lands on, right? That's just sharing the gospel. That's what that is. How about the parable of the sheep and the goats? You know what that tells me? Final judgment is coming. There's coming a day when King Jesus is going to be on the throne and he's judging all the nations of the earth. It's an amazing picture. That's real and that's coming. You know what that tells me as a servant? Urgency. No matter what I talk about, no matter what I pour my life into, I better be infusing the central message of the cross, the resurrection message that we're going to be talking about in more detail next week. It also tells me that there are real destinies of sheep and goats. Don't let the world fool you. There really are two different kinds of people in this world. There are sheep who are going to enter into their rest. Jesus, as the shepherd, is going to separate the sheep from the goats. And there are two eternal destinies that are very different. One, to be with Him forever. And it will be paradise and one to be separated from him forever, and it will be hell. And that's real. Brings me back to the message of what I'm sharing, and that the kingdom work is what I'm to be about. That's Matthew 25. How about Luke 12, the parable of the leaven and the Pharisees? You know what that tells me? Jesus frowns on hypocrisy. First part of the share acronym is sincerity. Some of that's just being sincere as a Christian. As we talk about some of the blockers to sharing Christ with people, you're going to see that hypocrisy is a giant bomb in accomplishing the gospel. It, it tears it down. It also teaches me not to fear men, but to boldly acknowledge Christ. That's found in Luke 12. Also in Luke 12 is the parable of the rich fool. This is the last one. And the rich fool was rich in this life and not rich toward God. You know what it, you know what it is for me? I want to invert that. God, I don't want to be a rich fool. I want to be rich toward you, even if, and maybe especially if, that means being poor in this world. It also, in that parable, tells me to be awake and ready for the master to return. And as I'm sitting on a hospital bed sometime this week, the days have blurred together. I don't know which day it was. But I just sat there and pondered this question. Will he find me faithful? I want to lift a burden from you today. I don't want you to worry about him coming back and finding you an expert. I don't want you worried about him coming back and finding you a busybody. Running around trying to accomplish by works somehow what's only given freely. But I do want to challenge you spur you on to ask this question of yourself, will he find you faithful? Some of you came and gave me and my family a gracious gift. You came and visited my son in the hospital. One of the things I get to do as a full-time pastor is I get to go and visit you in the hospital. And I've seen many of you uh, looking less glamorous than you do today. And now being on the receiving end, I want to thank you and say, wow, what a gift it was to just receive a visitor. I think to myself, if I'm ever driving to the hospital when the Lord comes back and I'm going there simply to be a blessing, simply to to give a gift of my presence, I wouldn't mind being found in that moment. I wouldn't mind being found in the moment of, of nursing those who are ailing walking with those who are hurting. Some of you on a weekly basis drive people to their doctor's appointments because they can't drive. You go shopping with them because they're they're getting up in years and they can't make things out like they used to, and you help them with paperwork and how it is to live in our day. Isn't that how you want to be found when the master comes back about his work, rich in good deeds, with pure motives? That's how I want to be found. It starts to make me think about how am I, how am I entertaining myself? How am I investing and spending time, my downtime? I don't really want to be found hanging out at the movies when God comes back. I really don't. Movies aren't bad. I don't want to be just hanging out, lounging when the master returns. I want to be about His work, and I want to do it for the right reasons. Here's some common themes that you'll find as you go investigate more parables, and I challenge you to do that. Here's a, here's a kind of grand theme you'll find. Ready? Here it is. Orient your life to the great cause of Christ and not to a great comfort for you. Orient your life to the great cause of Christ and not to a great comfort of you. Over and over again in the parables, I love that someone wrote at that station back there, the love of God compels me to be uncomfortable. One of you wrote that down. I just read that a second ago. And as you read, you realize, wow, this isn't my time of rest. This, isn't, this life I lead isn't my time of rest and relaxation. God help me. Let it be food to me to be about your will. An Old Testament example very quickly is the story of Noah. You know what Noah had? Noah had a laser focus on obeying God in what he had called him to do. He called him to do a great work, build an ark, right? And he called him to give a great message, warn people that a flood's coming. How did the warning go? Terrible! I mean, really, you look at him, you go, buddy, your own family, that's it? I mean, you couldn't get anyone else in the boat? He had years to build this thing. But from what I can gather from the Scriptures, Noah was not a perfect man. Continue the story after he gets off the ark. But you know what Noah was? He exemplified, he appeared to exemplify to me, a long obedience in the same direction. I don't know who coined that phrase, but it's awesome. He just persevered. Kept building a boat when there was no flood. Kept giving the warning of flood coming when there was no rain. Kept at it in the face of of getting tired. Kept at it in the face of being mocked. How about us? Is, is Is ours that different? I mean, God's given us a great work to do. Some of you haven't found out what that is yet. Maybe you're not pushing on enough doors. But he's also given us a great message. He's given us a message of warning. A flood's coming. Judgment is coming. This boat is the way of salvation. The cross of Christ is the way of salvation. Now, I want to wrap up fairly quickly with some common hurdles. You ever be in a conversation and you hit a brick wall? Married people, say yes. Thank you very much. You're talking with someone and all of a sudden you're just, I mean, you are at a, you're at a standstill. There's a brick wall between you and that other person. It's frustrating, isn't it? It's frustrating because you love this person, you want to communicate, but you're not there. It's just nothing's happening. I think as we talk about Christ, we, we hit these sometimes. And I've been asking around, some of you and some outside of our church, I've been asking around, what are some of the most common objections you hear as you start to explain Christianity or even begin to dialogue spiritually that seems to just shut the thing down before you even get started? And I've come up with four that I'm going to share with you. Here's the first. The first is that there's one way. It comes off this way, that you're narrow-minded, that it's exclusive, that the reason I'm not a Christian is because, uh, you know, it doesn't give credence to other things. One of the things I talked about a couple weeks ago is that we know what we're sharing, that we know what the gospel even is, right? And so that we understand what, what the offer of Jesus really is. If we have it confused, we'll we'll communicate that it's rest and relaxation on this earth when you read, and that's not what it is. We'll read that it's reward on this earth. That's not what it is. It's a reward coming. Your life may get worse. We don't use that much because we we tend to that puts people off. But but here's the reality. What kind of news is it? Is it good news? Is it bad news? Is it mixed news? Some of you have heard this statement: No news is good news, right? Sometimes that's true in a hospital. You're sitting there and you're like, no news is good news right now. We just want to keep things moving forward. Let me just say, in sharing the gospel, this isn't true. This doesn't apply. And yet, for many, many Christians, those who call themselves Christians, no news is their good news. They aren't sharing bad news, good news, mixed news. They're, they're, they're not speaking up about it at all. I know some of you. You get good news. And you're immediately texting with two different devices with a phone in your ear, you know? I mean, you want to communicate. You want to post it. You want to talk about it. You want to get it out there. For some, I hope this morning is just fanning into flame. You're like, man, I used to be really passionate about sharing how much I really do love Jesus. That hasn't changed. What's changed is I keep getting socked in the face. I keep getting shut down. I keep getting mocked. It's tiring. Go back and read Matthew 10. It is hard. It's tiring. Go back and read the story of Noah. It takes a long time sometimes. But you know what? You just be faithful. God's going to give you the faith. He wants this news out, does he not? Yes. So you just be faithful to keep giving it. The most radical claim of Jesus probably is that he is the only way. Now, here's people's biggest problem with this, I think. If heaven were just a place that you get to be at for a duration of time. And someone comes along and says, you get to go and you don't get to go, and I know how to do that. That sounds really, really offensive to us, doesn't it? Think of heaven as Disneyland. Now, if you think of heaven as Disneyland, you've got some biblical work to do. But for the sake of argument here on earth, let's just pretend that we're talking about Disneyland. And I say, David, you get to go. Olivia's, you don't get to go. Both Olivia's. See, they're sitting together. Now, the rest of you in here would have some issues with that, even the Adams family, because they, would, they wouldn't just be like, my kids did I'm good. They're compassionate people. They would care about that too. If we feel like we're coming to people and we're saying that heaven is a, a place and a duration of time and here's how it is, then the one-way exclusivity is very offensive. Let me just, let me just turn this a little bit. Because our hope is rooted in relationship That means that this radical claim of Jesus being the only way to the Father, he could not have been more clear about it. Because our hope is rooted in relationship, um, then this radical claim of one way is what the reward is. In other words, the the, the reward is relationship with Jesus. So if the reward is relationship with, with Jesus for forever, then you see how the only way to get the reward, which is the relationship with Jesus, has to be through Jesus. Does that make sense? So, so it's not that, it's not that we have this, this, this pastor fail that way. That is the reward. That is the offer, the relationship with Jesus. And so therefore, it is exclusive to say Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Now, here's what I know. We don't need to make the gospel any more offensive than it already is. So, breath mints, as you're sharing, that's a good thing. You don't need to offend them with that. Um, pounding a Bible, hitting people, none of that really is needed. The gospel itself is offensive in some ways, in many ways, because of the fact that it, that it stirs up something. Here's what I would say. The doctrine of depravity says this. Every human being, no matter what race, color, size, shape, or age that you are, is equally rebellious toward a good and perfect and holy God. All of us are on that common ground. You want to find common ground with whatever you would right now imagine is the most heinous sinner you can think of? Put yourself at the foot of the cross. Realize that you're not on the cross saving yourself. Only Jesus is and that we're all level, we're all on equal ground. That's the doctrine of depravity, to understand that. To the degree to which I don't believe in that doctrine is the degree to which I think I'm a step above Jonathan Hurley. Jonathan's a step down from me. Therefore, some of the other issues, some of the other brick walls that I'm about to talk about start to creep in. But if you can teach and understand and believe and walk in total depravity and understand it's all a gift of grace, you find common ground with those that you're sharing with. Here's the second one is that Christians are judgmental. Have you heard this before? Yeah? It's because it's true. It really is. Now, I didn't say that all Christians are judgmental, but Christians are very judgmental. Now, side issue is this. For the Christians in the room this morning, you know what the Bible instructs you to be judgmental? When someone comes and says the Bible says you shouldn't be judgmental, that's an inaccurate statement. But do you know who Christians are to judge? Who? Christians. And? Yourself. Examine yourself. Remember the speck in your brother's eye and the big old stick sticking out of your own eye? Examine yourself. You're to judge other Christians. You're to hold them accountable to the life worthy of the calling. That's why marriage vows are so important in the covenant of marriage and the witnesses that are there. And this baby dedication that we just did. I've had people who've wandered away from this church, who've dedicated their baby in this church. And I've appealed back to the day that we stood on a stage together committing that they first were walking with the Lord and committing to follow him the rest of their days and then that they would walk with their child. And thus far, as far as I know, it's to no avail. But judging other Christians, judging ourselves is what we're to do. Like Jesus, we didn't come to judge those outside the church. We didn't come to judge those. Those are for God anyway. We're terrible judges. We said this in a courtroom. As an apologist, you don't need to be the expert. You're just on the witness stand, just, giving, just sharing what you know. You're not the judge. You're not the jury. You're not the court reporter or the expert prosecutor. You're just the witness. Now, Christians have a sordid history of this, and I think Christians really must own up to some of the things that have gone on. When someone comes and says, Christians are judgmental, you say, I know it's terrible. And you say that sincerely because it is. I hope you Christians sometimes cringe at what passes as the Christian viewpoint in the media. What you understand is that the word Christian has been so watered down and changed and distorted that you say, oh, that's not what a Christian is at all. Now, that's just what got led into the newsroom and on the news this week, and that guy's a nut job, but that's not the Christian worldview at all. You talk to an international student who's here afresh, the first thing I do, I say, by the way, you know that we're a Christian nation? Let me, tell you all, let, me, let me tell you what a real Christian's about, according to the Bible. Don't take all these different crazy things that you see. You know what the great antidote is to someone thinking that Christians are judgmental? I'm going to give it to you. Ready? It's relationship. All of a sudden, a person is forced to move from this statement, those Christians are judgmental, intolerant, narrow-minded, anti-intellectual, whatever it might be, to all of a sudden dealing with Travis Jones. To all of a sudden saying, those Christians, but, but I know Lena, and she's a Christian, and she's not like that. Relationships begin to break down this brick wall. Now, we understand that the results of our message, the results for Noah was the Holy Spirit moving the hearts of people. The results for us as we cast the seed wildly is completely and unholy on the, on the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. He works in relationships. He's chosen to work in people. Dartmouth Medical School did a research project, and rather than coming up with their own research, what they decided to do was take 260 current research projects on young people and, um, and study the results of it. The results were so revealing that they prompted the project to be renamed. It was a scientific study of young people, and it became hardwired to connect. Why the change? Because they said all the research, not 90%, not 95%, not even 99%, but all of it, showed that from the moment a baby is born, that the child's brain is, physic- is physically, biologically, chemically hardwired to connect with others in relationship. That's the case not only spiritually and emotionally, but also physiologically. You know what the headline of that is? Modern research catches up to ancient wisdom in the scripture. It really is, which is fantastic, Right? We just we hear that, we say, that's really compelling and that's interesting, but we already knew that. We really did. Here's the question for you do your relationships engender belief or endanger belief in Jesus Christ? Does your relationship with another and the fact that they know that you're a Christian, does that engender the belief, does that build up belief and cause someone to to be curious and want to know more or does it endanger belief in Jesus Christ? Where they could say those Christians are so judgmental and so is that Naomi, so is that Dave. If that's us, then by God's grace we need to change. Results mean changed life. So I, I pray that you long for results, but I want you to know how they come about. We're dependent on the Holy Spirit. The other thing is this. I want you to study the gospel. I want you to study um, logical argument, those kind of things. Always growing in knowledge of the Lord is fantastic. But here's the other study that you ought to be doing. You ought to be studying people. How many of you like to people watch? Raise your hand if you like to people watch. That's a fun pastime for me. It really is. And it's just so fascinating. I mean, just the wide variety of people that walk by you anywhere, and as you people watch you, you, you study them and you, and you learn about them. When you're engaged in a conversation, one of your one of your best tools, really, uh, just to understand them, is just listening to them, being a good listener. It's actually possible to tailor an evangelistic message to any person that you come across just by listening to them, just by finding out about them. Now, people will smell a fake a mile away. We talked about this. Those who are pyramid-scheming Tupperware to you, they've called you after a long time. Hey, buddy, how's it going? Oh, it's so good to hear from you. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Man, what a trip that you're calling. Yeah, about that. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, I'm being sold right now. That's not a relationship. That's a sales technique. So the antidote to Christians being judgmental is real relationship, genuine relationship that you come. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't turn spiritual conversations. You don't turn the conversation toward God. If that's the central thing in your life, that's what's going to happen anyways. But we don't want to bait and switch people. Listening and concern. Concern means communicating to be understood, not just to be heard. So just having genuine concern for people. All right, very quickly, next one. Anti-homosexual. There's another brick wall that drops right in front of you as you're talking with people about Christ. I hope that you've come across this because it means you're sharing your faith with people who aren't currently in church and need the gospel. People look at Christians and they want to know first thing about our church. Are you guys anti-homosexual? Or, or they'll ask it a different way. What are your views about homosexuality? I want to tell you about the story of a guy named Kyle who was immersed in the gay lifestyle for two decades. By God's grace, he chose to follow Jesus Christ. He went to his pastor and counselor, and in essence, their words almost forced him back into secret as they said this. Here was their advice. Don't ever talk of your plight or your struggle again to anyone. After another 15 years of following Jesus, And celibate living, he tested the waters again to a church. Thinking, surely times have changed. Surely someone will walk with me in this. Surely someone will show me the love of Jesus, come around side and just pray with me. I need a brother in Christ to pray with, a sister in Christ to be around me. Much to his sadness, he found a very similar result. This is not uncommon in American churches. I would say with all of these that I put up, except for the one way, I think there's repentance needed by Christians. Personal repentance, and repentance just for our family, those who are genuinely the sheep of Christ. We ought to repent for a lack of concern, a lack of empathy towards people who are homosexual, who are struggling with that. Let me say two words to this topic and then give a couple of ideas. The first is to know the truth, and the second is to speak it with compassion. Does this sound like our theme verse? Give a reason for the hope that is within us, yet with gentleness and respect. Truth and compassion. Here's the truth. Many try to take this way out. They try to reinterpret God's design for men, for women, and for heterosexual marriage. Don't do that. My advice to you would be to use Romans chapter 1, 26 to 27. There are about 8 to 10 verses in the scriptures that deal specifically with the issue of homosexuality. You ought to read them, study them, and know them. Here's why I would point you to the Romans text. One is that people want to relegate Old Testament and say nothing in the Old Testament applies to us. That's a longer conversation than than you usually have with someone over this topic. It shuts down far sooner than you have time to explain that. Romans is in the New Testament. Secondly, it addresses both male and female homosexuality in Romans 1. And it addresses the real problem, which is rebellion toward God and a rejection of his design. That's what the Romans 1 passage talks about. Know the truth, but also speak it with compassion. Most homosexuals aren't short on biblical truth, but very short on compassion and empathy. Here's some ideas to consider in the don't category, as in don't do it this way. Ideas to consider for you. Here's one. Bury your head in the sand and hope it goes away. There are some Christians who just say this, la, 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 I don't want to talk about it, think about it, or whatever. I'll tell you, this is here to stay. You, you would best learn how to dialogue and think this through and say, God, I want to be a faithful witness to you, Jesus, on this topic. Don't use cliches. Cliches weren't that helpful or compassionate when I used them in the early 90s. The early 90s, I was a student at West Valley studying architecture when a friend of mine from high school began a correspondence with me via letter. Children, this is paper and pen. You put it in an envelope, lick something, put it on, and it flies across the country to your mailbox. Okay. And he was off at a school back east, and he knew I was a Christian. And so something in the way that, we interacted. He felt safe to ask this question. He started asking about a friend of his who was wondering what God thinks about homosexuals and wonders if you can marry the homosexual lifestyle with being a Christian. So I prayerfully began to answer and correspond with him, and I gave some verses and I read some things and There was something in my response that kept him coming at least to be asking more questions. He felt safe that he could dialogue back and forth with this, and we continued. But what I realized is as I got more cliche and more pointed, at some point the correspondence completely stopped. And I came later to find out it was the old, you know, a friend of mine has a situation I want to talk about. It was him. It was him wrestling with these questions. I happen to know his story, and I know that he had no other church background. I know, uh, I think, that I was one of the only Christians he could really have talked to in that moment. I grieve over that because I don't. I, I pray that God would grow me and use me better next time. But I know that some of the cliches that I threw out in, in those days weren't helpful or compassionate to, to coming alongside and keeping the conversation going. Number three in the don't category is don't treat it as the supreme Evil. Go read Romans 1 again. You know what homosexuality as a sin is listed next to? Here's just a little highlight. Stealing. Coveting. That means being greedy for something that someone else has. Getting drunk. Lying. So don't treat homosexuality as the supreme evil. Here are some do's. Do... Pursue a long-term versus short-term goal. A short-term goal would be this. I want to straighten out this friend of mine. A long-term goal is to say, I want to bring this person to Jesus. You know why the long-term goal is so much better? You can't straighten someone out. You can't straighten out a liar. You can't straighten out a drunk. You can't straighten out a pride maniac. Only Jesus can. So think about friends that you're friends with, and think about the fact that you don't harp on the fact that they have these shortcomings, and that's all you see them as. Here's number two. Ask questions instead of making statements. Aim to influence and not just be heard. Questions done the right way actually invite conversation. Actually put down defenses. Actually take down the brick walls of things. Number three is this, pursue friendship with homosexuals. That Jesus is a friend of sinners is my hope. That's my hope. That's a Christian's calling card. Jesus was a friend of sinners. That's the only way that I got in. That's the only way that I'm friends with him. No easy answers to this, but there are just some ideas. Here's number four is that Christians are hypocritical. Christians are hypocritical. We spoke about this a couple weeks ago, but bears repeating, character matters. We are surrounded by people who are uninterested in the truth of the gospel, partly because they are thoroughly unimpressed with those who proclaim it. They see your life, they see you as judgmental and hypocritical, whatever else you could add to the list. They go, I don't want your Jesus. Now, again we talked about this. A life transformed by Christ is compelling, but it's not enough. I've never, in forty years, I've never held the door open for someone, and someone walks by and says, "You must be a Christian. Can you tell me how to be saved?" I hold the door open for a lot of people. My parents raised me right. I do. I hold the door open. I've never stopped and done that. So, a life transformed by Christ is really compelling because they look at you and go, "Man, you're 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 pretty much adult, and yet you know God's using you. You're doing great things. Wow." why God's given us a mouth, and that's why God's given us the courage to proclaim the message of the gospel. I'm going to invite the band up right now, and I want to challenge you not to settle for one of two extremes that sometimes go on. The extreme of the modern way of thinking is that you exalt truth sometimes at the expense of relationship. And so a big thing in the in the young evangelical world is, is to revolt against that and say that we shouldn't be giving propositional truth because that's cold and that's stale and that's truth at the expense of relationship. Much of that I really resonate with and agree with. However, here's the other extent or the other extreme that people then swing way over here. You know what they do? They exalt relationship, emphasize relationship so much that they... Expend truth. They say relationship is all it's about. It's just about loving Jesus. Doesn't that sound nice? I mean, who's going to beat you up for saying, hey, it's just about loving Jesus? I tell you, even though Jesus is a fairly divisive kind of name in in our day and age, no one's going to throw a punch at you for doing that. But as you start to unpack what loving Jesus looks like, and what jesus means when he calls us to follow him that's going to get you a punch in the face sometimes that's going to get you beat up and put in prison sometimes so don't settle for the modern way of thinking don't settle for the postmodern way of thinking listen to 1st thessalonians 2:8 these are elders talking to a church we loved you so much that we were delighted catch the word, to share with you. Not only the gospel of God, there's truth being exalted and valued, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. That's relationship. The truth of the gospel of God and our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Christians, fulfill the great commission. Sometimes you have 30 seconds. Don't try to build a slow, long relationship in that moment. Just proclaim the gospel of Jesus. But many other times you run in the same kinds of patterns in your life and week to where you can begin to build relationship. As we close in song, I want you to think about the ultimate sharing example. it's god sharing his son jesus to come and live amongst sinners to come and show us the way to come and identify with us to come and exchange his life so that we might have eternal life it's jesus sharing his glory with us so that when he returns read this in colossians 3 i just i just let it invigorate me this morning that when he returns we'll be glorified with Him. And to keep our eyes and our minds focused on that. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus. We thank You that You are a good and patient God, one that paved the way for our adoption as sons, as daughters, before the foundation of the world You chose us. Like disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, many of us here in this room, I know, Lord, would say, my spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. And so we close this morning, God, crying out to you, Jesus, would you fill us up in all the ways that we lack? Would you help us to trust where we doubt, knowing that you'll provide in that moment, Help us to even take a step out of the boat so that we can be placed in in situations where we can't rely on ourselves. Answer our prayer to be uncomfortable, Lord. Jesus, keep us from being distracted by comfort. Free us from the idols that vie for our attention and vie for control of our lives. We know what we need to know. We need Your Spirit to fill us afresh so that we can be empowered to go and live the life You would have us live. We praise You. We thank You for being alive today and for giving us all things for life and godliness. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.